Thanks for joining us today for the Post-Traumatic Faith Podcast, a place where trauma, hardship, and challenge meet faith and hope for the future. Here is your host, Jill Riley. Welcome to Post-Traumatic Faith. Season 3 has arrived. I am so excited to share with you this season new guests, new topics, and some great conversations. So tune in every week on Fridays. We will have a new episode. Also this season, we will celebrate our 100th episode. So stay tuned for that. Just happens to fall on my birthday, October 28th. So we will have a big celebration. Thank you so much for joining us. And here's today's guest. Welcome to Post Traumatic Faith. This is Jill Riley, and today I'm here with Tiffany Yecky Brooks, and I am just thrilled to have you with us today, Tiffany. Thanks for showing up. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to talk. Well, let me tell you a little bit about Tiffany. Tiffany is the leader contributing writer on more than two dozen books, including multiple New York Times bestsellers. I'm going to let her tell us a little bit more about book, her books later. But Tiffany also holds a PhD from Florida State University, where her dissertation covered, in part, cultural adaptations of stories from the book of Genesis and an MA from the University of Bristol in the UK, where her thesis examined cultural influences and literary techniques in the gospel of Luke, a popular speaker for student groups, faith conferences, and academic lectureships. Tiffany has taught literature and writing at Abilene Christian University, McMurray University, and the University of South Carolina, Beaufort, Beaufort. 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 <laughs> it's Beaufort, oh. North Carolina, and Beaufort in South Carolina, but they're spelled the same way. So it's. Uh... Oh, see? So I was halfway right, I guess. Oh. <laughs> Absolutely. So, first of all, tell us a little bit. I didn't want to go through the list of titles without giving you a chance to um, talk to us a little bit about what you've been writing about, but you've, you are a prolific writer. So, what are your favorite topics to write about? Yeah, well, um, I kind of built a career as a ghostwriter. So I did that actually um, for someone else and under not my own name for about 14 years. Um, and I worked a lot. Um, most of most of it was in the sports space. Um, so memoirs of um, athletes, then doing some business books and some history books. And then in 2019, I took a leap of faith, stepped out on my own and um co-authored a book with uh, James Conner, who is a running back with the Arizona Cardinals now, um, about his uh, diagnosis of cancer while he was in college and how he fought back through that, relied on his faith and uh, was drafted into the NFL and is now one of the top running backs in the league. Um, it's called Fear is a Choice. And um, he's just an incredible, incredible person. Um, and he has such an inspirational story of, you know, fighting through kind of diagnosis most most people don't expect when they're, you right. know, in their early 20s and, you know, peak physical form. Um, and then last year, I actually had two books come out. One is called uh, Limitless, and that's with Paralympic gold medalist Mallory Wegeman. She has a phenomenal story about... Um, representation. She was paralyzed from the waist down at, um, at the age of 18, um, during a routine medical procedure. And now she is a, a multi-time Paralympian and multi-time gold medalist for the United States as a swimmer. Um, and her working with her was just one of the most eye-opening experiences for me in terms of 
learning about how representation matters and how we speak about disability and how we think mm-hmm. about the uh, disabled community. Um, and that actually influenced the book that you and I are mostly going to be talking about today. Um, there's a section in there about how how churches view disability and sometimes speak about that. Um, and then I also had a um, kind of a, a nonfiction historical thriller, I guess you could call it, called Espionage and Enslavement, that I co-wrote with historian Claire Bellagio. And it's um, a really amazing story about an enslaved woman on Long Island in the 18th century who uh, possibly was a spy for the Americans during the revolution. Um, Interesting. And then was sold South to South Carolina and um, kind of advocated for her own freedom and managed to be uh, brought back to New York. And it's really an, an incredible, remarkable story. And Vanessa Williams actually wrote the foreword to the book because she has uh, personal family connections to, um, to it. So it's, it's, I'm a little all over the place, I guess, <laughs> with where my books uh, yeah. have been, but I love telling stories that are impactful and empowering and, you know, give voice to experiences that are sometimes on the margin. Um, Is there a preferable genre for you? Do you, do you like the historical fiction? Do you like the um, the spiritual writing, which or the sports writing? I mean, you've kind of crossed a lot of different right. lines there. Well, so it's actually non, it's historical nonfiction. So it's a true non-fiction. story. Um, which is, that's phenomenal because the historian I worked with is like a detective basically. So it was really cool, you know, seeing her do like sleuthing work and tracking down old records and connecting lines and, and, and threads to create the story. So I do love that. I definitely love writing in the spiritual space. Um, as you know, as, as we get on discussing the book we're talking about today, um, the process of writing that was deeply healing for me. Um, but I also do, I, I do love working with athletes as well who, or, you know, or really anyone who has a story to tell, um, that they want to tell in the most effective way possible to, um, influence and help and empower people to, um, you know, to, to see things differently or to, to think differently about their own lives. As a writer, I'm curious, what is uh, the joy in ghostwriting? Where do you find um, the, the I, I don't know anything about ghostwriting. So I guess where is, where is the fun and all in, in telling those stories? You know, there, there are so many people who have remarkable stories, but are not necessarily writers. And for me, I love being able to take their stories and their experiences and help that help them turn that into something that they can share, you know, that they can use their platform and their experiences to speak about. I love seeing their confidence grow. about children in foster care sort of as an advocacy book that's not okay so we're gonna have to we're gonna have to pause because i lost you there for a minute and the camera is still waiting to catch up here okay are you there yes Okay. So you were just saying you love, um, you love seeing people's confidence grow as they're telling their stories. 
Okay. Can you see and hear me again? Yep. Now I can again. Okay. Sorry. I don't know what happened. I'm sorry. Um, okay. Where, where do you need me to pick up from? Um, just that you love seeing people's confidence grow as they tell their stories. Yeah. So um, a couple of years ago, well, a number of years ago, I worked with a professional athlete who had grown up uh, partly in foster care. And he wanted to tell his story from the point of view of a child in the foster care system as sort of a way to advocate and give a voice to kids like him who were, you know, who, who are often overlooked. Now, you know, I was blessed to have not had to grow up in the foster care system. You know, this is normally, this is something that I wouldn't normally have, you know, had any uh, authority to speak in that, that platform or in that realm, but he shared his experiences and I was able to help him sort of craft them into a narrative that he could then share and use as a tool to give other people a voice. And for me, that's Mm -hmm. so beautiful because, you know, my, my ego has to be completely removed from that because I'm, you know, I'm telling someone else's story and I can only work within the facts that they, you know, that, that they have. And so how do we create something meaningful um, out of that, that they can then use to advance what is important to them and matters to them. And, you know, it's, it's a cause that I care deeply about, but like I said, I, I don't have experience. in. so it's a way to sort of help, help issues that, I care about, but don't necessarily have the grounds to speak on or advocate for myself, but I can. Yeah. And what a beautiful thing to be able to gain some perspective and give perspective to people that uh, you've gained from somebody else. I, I love that. I love that. So your current book, which is just released, is Gaslighted by God. Um, give me just a little a little peek into what this is about, and we'll kind of unpack it as we as we move forward here. Sure. Okay. Well, the subtitle is uh, Reconstructing a Disillusioned Faith. Um, and so the book is really for, it's for the person who is so broken down or soul tired that they really can't stand the thought of picking up another book that tells them that they just need to pray more or study the Bible more or trust more or carry more guilt about their own sin, whatever that is. Like maybe then God will listen to them. Um, A line that I say in the book is this isn't a book that promises that if you just squeeze enough Jesus on the situation, it'll get better. Mm-hmm. Because I feel like so often that is, that is what scriptural or, or, you know, but spiritual books tell us it's like, well, you just need to, to try to pray more, be a little closer to God or Jesus. And that's not, that's not what this book is about. This is about trying to heal people who have been through religious trauma, spiritual abuse, or just feel burned out because they, maybe they felt like they to, to use the old fable, you know, called out that the emperor had no clothes. You know, they said like something is wrong here in the way we're doing church or the way our faith is being played out. And so often people who do that are, um, disciplined in the church, you know, they're, they're called backsliders or, you know, godless liberals or cherry pickers or, you know, whatever, like pick your, pick your title. Um, or, you know, progressive is thrown out. Like it's this horrible, dirty word. <laughs> like it's a, like it's a bad word. Right. Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like progress is somehow something we should be afraid of. Um, and I think, you know, the problem isn't God, it's the narrative that we've constructed around God that too often uses 
language of abuse or manipulation, you know, all of the, for such a worm as I, or we'll never be enough on our own. And all of these things that really kind of knock the individual down rather than allowing us to live into our fullest selves in Christ. Um, and yeah, so I wanted to write a book that's basically for people who are so burnt out on faith because the system that they were taught is problematic or even built on toxic theology. Um, right. And Sometimes, you know, if you question that, you can be accused of doubting or, you know, be told to worry about eternal damnation. Um, and I think that's where the gaslighting comes in is because a lot of times um, people want to pin the problem on the believer rather than maybe flawed systems in our own way of thinking about God or our own theologies that we right. built our churches on. And then we say, well, you didn't really experience what you think you did. You must have misinterpreted that because we know God does this. You know, and that that's so dehumanizing to tell someone that they're lived that that's not what they experience. Right. Exactly. Right. So there's so much talk right now about and writing and podcasts about deconstructing faith. Why do you think uh, what brings us to this season where people are just tearing it apart? And and I don't mean that in a negative sense. I mean that in an investigative sense. People are taking their faith and dismantling it and trying to find what's at the root. Is this something that you think we have always done and we just pinned a name on it right now? Or are we really going through a different season right now where people are, are deconstructing? Well, Jesus was a deconstructionist. I mean, Jesus mm -hmm. spoke truth to corrupt power systems in his own religious tradition. You know, he was someone who, you know, we have throughout his exchanges with the Pharisees, you know, calling them whitewashed tombs. And, you know, Jesus didn't pull punches when it came to calling out toxic belief systems. Right. And so I think it's, it's sort of ironic when we hear church leaders today who talk about deconstruction, like it's this big boogeyman that's determined to just take down Christianity when it's actually what our faith was founded on, which is mm -hmm. saying we need to get rid of the things that are broken, that are harming people, that are marginalizing people, that are putting up fences around God. And we need to reclaim what the spirit of this is intended to be. Absolutely. Um, and so, yeah, I think, I think Christianity is founded on deconstruction. And so right now as so many people are saying, you know, Christianity has sort of lost its way in favor of politics or nationalism or, um, you know, power structures. It's getting back to, you know, they're saying, let's look at the example of Jesus. Let's get back to the heart of what Jesus really stood for and not just what he taught, but what he lived. You know, I heard something interesting recently, which is that, you know, the Nicene Creed skips over the life of Jesus. It says, you know, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered and died under Pontius Pilate. And we skip this whole section where he taught and healed and preached and called people out. And that's what I think a lot of Christians today would say is really kind of the most significant mm -hmm. part of Jesus's ministry is not the birth or the death, but what he did in between there. And it's interesting that Western Christianity has removed that to some degree. And I think right now, a lot of Christians are saying, you know, 
that's what we really need to be looking at. And if we're true, right, that example of, of, of true discipleship, true followership, true leadership is really what we need to be looking at because it gives us a template for our own lives. Right. Yes, yes, exactly. And so I think deconstruction then is a natural outgrowth of that because that was so much calling out toxic power structures was so much of what Jesus did. Right. I have a friend who we were talking about deconstruction and he said, you know, there's only so much deconstruction you can do before you have to start putting some things back together again. And I think that's part of the natural process, right? Things, things out of, out of decay comes new life. And I think that's, that's part of the natural rhythm of what happens when we take things apart. And so I, I'm excited for where the church is going. And I know that there are a lot of people that would disagree with me, but I'm excited about um, some of the young people that I see and how they're rediscovering faith on different terms than what the systems that were put in place um, allowed them to allowed them to worship under. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, and one of the things I talk about early in the book is, you know, we see the significant moment where Jesus is talking to the, to the disciples and he asks them, who do people say that I am? And they throw out all these answers of, you know, this is what the religious leaders are saying. And this is who they say. And Jesus says, no, who do you say that I am? Mm-hmm. And that our personal encounter with God matters to Jesus. You know, our personal understanding is, is significant. And Peter makes his confession and Jesus says on this confession, I build my church. No, that is not an insignificant moment in the history of Christianity. Huge. Um, And I think we've, we've almost overlooked that in favor of um, what the system teaches rather than sort of rediscovering God, you know, kind of, as you said, like on our own terms and having these personal interactions, you know, when I wrote the book, I really envisioned it, you know, I'm tail end of Gen X. Um, I really envisioned it being sort of a Gen X millennial target audience. But what I found is really interesting is I recently um, taught a chapter of this book in my church. Um, My pastor invited me to teach the senior adults and I thought, okay, you know, this is, this How is going to be gonna go. Yeah, exactly. Like, are they going to feel attacked? Is this, um, and it was wonderful. And they, they invited me back for three more weeks because they were so engaged with it. They said, you know, I understand more some of the terms I'm hearing, but more, you know, like this is speaking to some of the questions and doubts that I've had. And one of the things that just like made me tear up was at the end of one class, this woman said, She'd been nodding the whole time. And then she finally spoke up and said, I am 92 years old and I have waited my whole life to read a book like this because mm. this says what I have felt and didn't think I could say. Wow. Yeah. And so that, that was really, to me, um, just this wonderful affirmation of the, the reach of these, the, the importance of these kinds of conversations for us to have. And that, you know, again, as somebody who's, you know, middle age, but still, you know, maybe more on the younger end of things. I, I thought that the conversation was going to be focused on the young Christians coming up, but I think there's actually a hunger for this across the spectrum of ages in Christianity, because so much of it has been hushed up and questions are pushed away and doubts are demonized. Um, 
And that's been the, just the, the way we do things for so long in the church that there have always been people who, who questioned or wanted to question and didn't feel they could. And so now that these conversations are finally coming out, it's like, oh, we can talk about this now. Right. I don't think you're right. I think you're right. I think there are, there's like a generation and, and a half above, above me. I'm almost 50. I'll be 50 this year. And there's like this generation and a half above me for which that are silent. Um, And it's not because it's not because they don't have the questions. I I think you're absolutely right. I think you're dead on the nail there. I think it's because it's not acceptable to ask. So let's back up a little bit. And um, first of all, um, the book is Gaslighted by God. Give us a definition of gaslighting because not everybody understands what that is. So give us your definition of that. Sure. Okay. Well, it's, it's a term that you'll hear a lot in, um, in discussions of psychology right now and sociology that it's taken from a 1938 play called Gaslight by a British writer named Patrick Hamilton. And it was later turned into a movie starring Ingrid Bergman. And in the story, a woman is like driven to the brink of madness by her husband um, who every night at a certain time, she sees the lights dim in the house, the gas lights in the house kind of dim down. And she points that out and he says, no, that's not happening. And she's like, but no, I see it. And he's like, no, you're just imagining it. No, something's wrong. You're crazy. Well, what it turns out is that at that time, every night, he's actually going and rooting through um, some old trunks that she has for an inheritance that a relative left her that he's trying to steal from her. But in doing so, he's trying to convince her that she's not really seeing what she's experiencing because then she starts doubting all of her reality. And then that will lead her to stop questioning him because then she's, you know, she thinks something is wrong with her. That so it's, is it's, fascinating. I never knew that's where that term came from. Yes. Yes. It's that an is Berkman incredible. Movie. And it's actually, and a fun little trivia fact here, it's actually Angela Lansbury's first movie. She plays a maid. Really? And yes. And so the the murder she wrote, murder she wrote uh, Jessica Angela. Jessica Fletcher is actually plays a little um, a young maid who's actually kind of in cahoots with the with the husband in the movie. So that's just a little bit fascinating. Okay, yeah, so fun. take that take that experience of that movie and transfer that into the church. And what does that mean to be gaslighted in the church? Absolutely. Well. It creates a tension between your experience versus what you are told your experience should be. So, I mean, the subtitle of the first chapter of the book is even reconciling scripture with experience. So it's the language of belief and the nature of God that we've been taught to understand um, or that we've been told this is the way it is when our experience doesn't align perfectly with that. then we're told generally one of three things, either the Bible is right, which means that our experience is somehow wrong. Um, or our, well, we're not told these things is, this is kind of what, what comes out either the Bible, right. Either the Bible is right, which means our experience is somehow wrong or our experience is right, which means the Bible is wrong or our experience replication of the Bible is somehow off base, which means that maybe we need to shift our thinking about God. So the first one you know, the idea that something is wrong with us. That's what most people who have raised questions tend to run into. The really uncomfortable one to think about is that our experience, if our experience is right, 
then is the Bible wrong? And so for people who still want to hold on to faith and who still identify as Christians, that's a really uncomfortable place, especially if you've been raised in a tradition of biblical inerrancy. Um, you know, what right. do you do with that tension when what you're what you read and what you're told are the promises and, and how this is supposed to play out doesn't align with what you're actually seeing in your own life. Um, which then means that that third point maybe is where we need to land, which is that our understanding or application of the Bible of scripture of theology of our understanding of God is somehow off base. And so let's re-examine how we're understanding God, how we are interacting with our faith, what our faith looks like, how we make meaning from it, what frameworks it provides for us in terms of how we see the world and our place in it, and maybe see if there is some shifting that needs to happen um, to make all of this reconcile. Well, and and it's possible that it's lost in translation, right? Lit- yeah. I mean, literally lost in translation where this is our lived in experience, but then, but then this is what scripture says or what we're told scripture says. And maybe, maybe what we're told isn't the way it really is. And that's Absolutely. really the place where this book lives, right? Yes, that's exactly right. You know, um, I, in a number of places in the book, we re-examine certain Bible stories that we've been told, this is what it means. This is what it's about. And, you know, something I say is I'm not saying that you have to throw out your old traditional understandings of things, but maybe hold them in, in tandem with some other alternate understandings that maybe we've been taught so much to see the story through this lens that if we change the lens, we can take something completely different from it. And maybe hold both of those in your understanding and see which one feels right, which one feels more consistent with the message of Christ. You know, I um, in studying theology in um, the the denomination I'm currently a part of, they have both closed hand and open fist theology, and so they say these things, these five things, we're going to hold with a closed fist. We're going to say salvation is important, the Holy Spirit is operational today, but these things are closed fist. But the rest of it, we're going to really hold with an open hand, which is to say we're going to hold it with some generosity and say, let's talk about this and let's dialogue and let's see where we come to as we both come to the word together. And I think that's a really, that's a really beautiful way of saying, we're going to hold some things loosely so as to better understand it together. Absolutely. That's so, that's such a grace-filled response to not knowing. Because I think that's one of the big challenges that the Christian church has run into is rightness. That because the stakes are so high of, are you going to heaven or are you going to be in hell forever? You know, like when you put eternity on the line as the reward or penalty for if you get it right or wrong, getting it right takes on that much more significance, you know? And so we're uncomfortable with saying, I don't know, or we're uncomfortable with saying, I may be wrong in this, but I think maybe this is what it means. Um, we've, we've turned rightness into an idol. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and so many religious leaders are, uh, you know, reluctant to say, I don't know, you know, they have to, they feel like they have to perform 
these logical gymnastics to get to an answer. And you're like, I don't think, you know, to justify genocide, for example, in the Old Testament, you're like, well, what, you know, what, what it actually means, what's really going on there is, you know, well, this had to happen because, well, no, like, let's just say genocide's wrong. Like, I think, I think we're in a place as human, of, you know, as, as a human race that we can say genocide's bad, you know, and that right. we should feel uncomfortable reading that in our holy scriptures. Right. So rather than trying to explain that away or pretending it's not there, like, let's look at that. Let's allow it to be uncomfortable. And let's say we maybe don't have the answers here. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So you talk about spiritual trauma a lot. How would you define spiritual trauma? Yeah. Um, You'll sometimes hear it called, I mean, spiritual trauma, religious trauma, religious abuse, spiritual abuse, church hurt, um, you know, is a pretty copy, uh, popular hashtag on social media. And really, it's it's any kind of painful experience that stems from a person's religious belief or tradition that makes them feel unsafe or unstable. Um, and that's usually due to some kind of damaging, traumatic, manipulative, coercive, or predatory actions or policies um, within a church or within a broader tradition. So it can be the result of abuse or neglect from either an individual who is meant to be an authority figure um, or a safe place. So like, for example, in a family, um, or Mm -hmm. it can be the result of broader practices and beliefs in an organization that impact the individual by sort of their, their trickle down um, effects in the overall culture. What did you just say? Either unsafe or unstable, unsafe or unstable. That's really powerful to Mm -hmm. say that these, these are the foundational things you should feel safe and you should be able to feel stable within your faith community. And if that is not the case, something's causing that to not be the case um, externally or systematically, systemically, then there's a problem there. That's a really powerful statement. Yeah. Yeah. No. And and I think, I think that's what a lot of people um, are feeling is that, you know, of all the places in the world, the one place where we should feel safe should be the church. Right. You know, you may come from an unsafe, you know, an unstable home, but the church should be a safe haven. You may come from a, you know, a rough neighborhood, but the church should be a safe place. And when the church is the place where trauma is happening or abuse is occurring or manipulation is going on. Um, man, that's, that, that is not, that is not the purpose of the church. You know, here's where, here, here's where my mind is going as I'm listening to you talk. And um, I'm going to cross the barrier that you're never supposed to, you know, cross and start talking about myself, but I'm going to start talking about myself. (laughs) I, you know, I was raised in a highly abusive home. I was also raised in the church um, consistently. Every time the church doors were open, we were there. But when the abuse started to surface, the church 
the, the pastor was told not to interfere because it was a family matter. And so they were told that it was, so my youth pastor and other pastors were told just stay away from this. And in fact, in fact, when it came time to um, go to court and custody over, over my, um, over custody of me from state care versus, you know, going with friends, going back to my, back to my mother, um, whatever it was, people from the church showed up and testified against me, the child saying that, that this would never happen. This woman would never abuse her children. And so that to me is where my mind is going because I'm thinking, man, I was told that this was, if I'm supposed to feel safe and I'm supposed to feel stable, I neither felt that in my home. And then it was reinforced in the church and which is an extreme example. I know of what you're talking about, but an example, nonetheless, I am so sorry you experienced that. That is heartbreaking because it is so, it is so opposite of what our experience in God is supposed to be in every way, both in your home and in your church. Like, you know, the, the idea of if you're, if you have an unstable home, like the church is supposed to be your family and we call them brothers and sisters. And so then you are just left without any kind of family that that's heartbreaking. Right. I'm so sorry. So, well, thank you. And, and, you know, something about, um, God preserved something in me that, uh, that said that this was people and that people weren't the way that weren't, weren't uh, pure and didn't always act in ways that edified the church or glorified the name of God. And, and I ended up being a pastor for, you know, the past 30 years and, and, it's because God was able to preserve that little piece that said, okay, this is my vehicle for transporting the gospel. And sometimes we get it wrong. And I'm really grateful for that. I'm deeply grateful for that. Absolutely. Absolutely. So what do you bring to the table? What brought you to the point of writing this book? You know, so I struggled, um, you know, for a lot of people, there's one big thing that's sort of tip the scale or move the needle for them that kind of launched them on a road to deconstruction. For me, there were a number of little things, you know, I grew up in a tradition that where women were not allowed to speak in church. And, um, I had, uh, some issues, um, with that. Um, one specifically, my husband was stationed overseas with the military and, um, our church was starting a small group and we, whoever was hosting it was supposed to do the lesson and provide dinner for the small group. Um, and a concern was raised when it was my week to host that there wouldn't be a man present. Um, and what added, so who would teach the lesson? What added insult to injury was the fact that the text we were studying was one that I had actually worked on in graduate school, but I was considered, you know, I was disqualified from speaking on it on the basis of my genitalia, basically. Um, and at that same time, um, I was teaching at the local university And it, um, I was teaching the sun also rises and I was talking about how, um, you know, the title comes from the book of Ecclesiastes and the significance of that. And I just had this moment standing in front of my classroom where I realized I am more free to talk about my faith in my secular college classroom than I am in my own church. Mm -hmm. And something, something is very broken there. Um, 
you know, and so that was one thing, you know, there were just, again, little, little things along the way that sort of chipped away at this sense of maybe what I was told is the right way to worship God is missing the boat somehow. Um, and, you know, something that I struggled with personally um, was uh, I have obs- obsessive compulsive disorder and it's something I'd struggled with obsessive thoughts from the time I was a child. But, um, you know, I knew they weren't normal, but it wasn't until until I was uh, 15 and I read a Reader's Digest story about it that I actually realized, oh, this is something, this is a thing <laughs> that people have. And but I'm not the only one. Right, right. Um, but it actually wasn't for another almost seven years when I was in graduate school that I finally talked to a doctor about it. Um, because, well, I mean, because a lot of reasons, but one of which was that I didn't want to admit that a good Christian, as a good Christian girl, I couldn't keep up with the injunction to pray continually or, you know, I mean, like, if I was in a movie and something sinful happened on the screen, I would feel suddenly feel like I had to pray for forgiveness because what if Jesus came back before the movie was over and I had this sin on my soul? Like, and I realized these aren't normal thoughts, but I was so controlled by them. You know, my brain was, was locked in that way of thinking. And because my faith was so central to, to who I was, um, that's really where the OCD took root. Um, and so I, there was a lot of self-imposed legalism um, because when you're brought up in a religious tradition that teaches that you're filthy and unworthy of God's love and grace, or you have to have, you have to have the right answer, you know, that's such a worm as I thinking, then you're constantly berating yourself for all the ways that you've fallen short. And then you're always also on the lookout for ways to be a better Christian and to follow the Bible right. closer. Um, and so the, I found out later the Roman Catholic church actually has a word for this kind of thinking. It's called scrupulosity. Um, And they actually sponsor theologians who are specially trained to help believers who struggle with that. And so no matter what your faith tradition is in Christianity, there's this wonderful book called um, it's by a priest named Thomas a Santa, like, like Santa Claus, Thomas a Santa. Um, And it's called understanding scrupulosity questions, help and encouragement. Um, And it is, it's very accessible and it's just a beautiful perspective from a trained religious leader on how to sort of deal with this type of thinking in religion. And it's not just for people with OCD. I mean, there are people who are just natural worriers and natural pleasers. Um, And that type of religious pressure can be, it can be immense and it can be life draining. Um, And so for me, you know, having some of that self-imposed legalism from the OCD, growing up in a tradition that was um, very fundamentalist, um, you know, all these different things sort of contributed to me reaching the point that we talked about. I have these questions and doubts and things don't line up with what I've been told God is supposed to be, or the Christian life is supposed to be. Mm -hmm. And so how do I make sense of that? And when, when that first hit me, you know, like maybe a dozen years ago, I didn't have the language of deconstruction. I didn't know what that was. I didn't have a word for that. I just thought, you know, I thought something was wrong with me. Um, and nothing, everything that I found to read on, it was always like, well, you just need to trust God more. You just need to pray more. And I was like, no, it's something deeper than that. There's something more broken. You know, it was like, well, spend more time in the word. And I was like, I'm doing that. And as I'm doing that, I'm seeing more inconsistencies. So how do I make sense of all of this? Um, and finally, um, in gosh, February of 2019, I was talking to uh, my counselor 
um, you know, I'd started seeing a counselor just to deal with, you know, so many of these struggles. And I just blurted out towards the end of a session. I said, I feel like I've been gaslighted by God. Um, and there was this long pause and I looked at her and she looked at me and it was like, the session was over. And she's like, we need to talk about that next week. So the next week I went in and I said, you know, I've been thinking about it and I think that's the title of a book. And she said, I think you're right. Um, and so when I was, when I teach writing, you know, or literature, I would also often have students say, you know, why, why doesn't the book talk about this? Or why isn't there a book that just, you know, discusses this experience? And I would always tell my students, well, then it's because you haven't written it yet. You know, if, if you think there should be a book that discusses that, then go and write it. And suddenly I realized that I had to take my own advice (laughs) and that (laughs) if there wasn't a book that I had found that spoke to that experience, maybe I needed to write it. And, you know, in that time, you know, I've now discovered some other books that have, that have come out over the past few years that talk about some of these same issues, you know, all from different angles. Um, But that's really, that's really kind of how I landed here was I just finally reached the point where um, I, I realized I couldn't be the only one. Yeah. And so let me try to give voice. And if nothing else, just let people know you're seen. And it doesn't mean there's something wrong with you. And it doesn't mean you have to walk away from your faith. Right. I, you know, that spiritual anxiety, I was raised in a tradition where I was constantly recommitting my life to Christ because I may have done, like you said, I may have done something wrong or I did something. And instead of saying, I am a beloved child of God. And, and if I ask for forgiveness and recognize that this is not the place I need to be, he is faithful to forgive that and forget that and move on. And instead I was constantly, constantly like recommitting my life to Christ because I must have backslidden if I had, if I had sinned or stepped into something that I shouldn't be seeing or, you know what I mean? And so that's that I, that's how I was raised. Right. Right. No, I think that's so true. And I think part of that too, is that we've, we've almost reduced Well, God tends to be presented in those sorts of environments. God tends to be presented one of two ways or, or both of them together. Neither of which I think is accurate. Um, One is that, you know, it's the God of wrath and punishment who is just waiting to catch you up, you know, in, in some sort of little, uh, some little fine point that, you know, he can trip you up and ha 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 ha, you know, now you are damned for eternity. Um, Or um, the idea that when God blesses us, it's transactional. If you Mm -hmm. do this, then God will do this, you know? And so it's almost, I call it like, uh, pray for pay. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, that it's like, I mean, and we even put it in our children's songs, like, you know, the wise man and the foolish man, you know, building their house on the rock and the the rains came down and the floods come up. But the last verse of that song is the blessings come down as the prayers go up. Yeesh. I don't, I'm not, I'm not comfortable with that. You know, like Mm -hmm. it's, I don't like the idea of, well, it's not just that I don't like, I don't think it's biblical to say that, you know, the more you pray, if you follow these prescriptive steps, then that's what makes God bless people. You know, that if right. we it's not, this- it's not an, if then kind of equation. Exactly. Exactly. It's like, we've turned it into like a chemical reaction of, it has to be this predictable thing. If we vote this way, then God will bless our country. Or if we follow these prescriptive steps of living, then God will reward you. Or if you follow the teachings of purity culture, that's the only way to have a good, fulfilling marriage. And so it's really hard 
if you're on the other side of that, and you know, and that's not to say that there aren't certain behaviors or choices that do lead to better outcomes. But, you know, if you see people who, you know, if you saved yourself for marriage and, you know, you have challenges in your sex life or your relationship is crumbling and you see these, you know, quote unquote, godless heathens who live together before marriage, who have this beautiful, stable family and this wonderful relationship, you think, wait a minute, that's not the deal I was promised. Right. I did it right. What happened? What's wrong with me? Yes. And so, so many of our churches, we love to talk about how terrible, um, prosperity gospel is, but that's just another form of prosperity gospel. If you, if, and only if you do this, then God will do that. That is just prosperity gospel repackaged. Um, And we have reduced so much theology to that, that people feel trapped in a system that, Mm -hmm. um, that, that, that isn't biblical somehow justify. Right. Absolutely. So the words healthiness, holiness, and happiness, those are key words for you. Tell me why those three words. Well, there was a very popular meme that was going around social media a couple of years ago that said, God cares more about your holiness than your happiness. And I don't know, it didn't sit right with me because Yes, maybe, but God cares more about your healthiness than your holiness. So there's a concept in the Jewish faith called pikuch nefesh. Um, and it it's, translates literally saving life. And the idea behind it is that um, life has to take priority over a strict adherence to the law. Mm-hmm. And it's so, for example, if um, on a high holy day in Judaism, you know, there are some days where you, you can't even have water. Um, you have to, when you fast for 24 hours, um, and Pekok Nefesh says, look, if you need to take medication that, you know, like keeps you functioning as a human, you can take a little bit of water to get that pill down. Or if you need to take something with food, or if you're diabetic, please do that. Like keep yourself alive rather than keeping this fast. That's more important. Um, and what's interesting about it is it's considered so much of an honor that, um, so if, for example, if someone had a heart attack on the Sabbath, um, normally you can't make a phone, you know, for, for very observant Jews, you can't make a phone call on the Sabbath. Um, cause that's connecting circuits or, or you know, doing work. Um, but Pekok Nefesh says, yes, call an ambulance. And in fact, the most religiously observant person present is the one who should have the honor of breaking Mm. the law to preserve life. Wow. And to me, that's so fascinating because even those, those words aren't used in scripture. We see it throughout the Bible of, of God and Jesus prioritizing life over the letter of the law. Um, And, you know, we see it when David and his men eat the showbread that's consecrated for the priests, you know, they're starving. Yes. Eat that. You know, even though God mm-hmm. said, don't in this case do that, that's okay. Stay alive. You know, Jesus references that um, in Matthew 12, when his disciples are criticized for rubbing wheat between their hands on the Sabbath, we see it in like Matthew 12 and Mark three, when um, Jesus heals a man with a withered hand in the synagogue. And he says, which is lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to save life or kill. Um, so, and you know, we see it again throughout where he, um, heals the, the, the woman whose back has been bent for 18 years. And he says, if one of you has a child or an ox who has fallen into a well, will you not immediately pull it out on a Sabbath day? 
Um, and there's an example through, you know, after example of Jesus wow. touching a dead body to heal or, um, you know, touching a leper to heal where he is breaking the law, but he's doing it for the preservation of life. And the idea is, you know, even John eight, where um, the people want to stone the woman caught in adultery. And Jesus asks, you know, you without sin, throw the first stone. He protects the woman's life first and then encourages encourages her to pursue holiness. So life takes priority and then holiness follows. So the way I, I talk about that in the book is the idea that we need to take the steps that we that we need to, to get ourselves into a safe and healthy place and then worry about the finer points of theology and the pursuit of holiness. Mm. Um, when we measure our spiritual success in terms of how much we suffered for the sake of the gospel or how, how unpleasant our daily battle against sin is, or how exhaustive our devotion is, we, we strip ourselves of that sacred gift of delight, you know, cause if you try to be holy without first asking yourself, if you're healthy, you can slip into a faith that's based in anxiety, fear, or shame. Um, and, you right. know, a lot of us have been taught that the gospel has to be firmly in place before we can begin, that a hurting person needs to accept Christ first and focus on the righteousness before they can begin to heal the brokenness in their life. But yeah, I mean, that that may be true for some people, but it's not an absolute. And, and for some people, the path towards righteousness means that you know, it might be clouded by unhealthy distractions or mental illness that, that they are struggling with. And so if that person is able to clear the obstructions to their health, then they can see the way forward towards more godly living. And as I say in the book, to insist on holiness as a prerequisite to healing is akin to missionaries who promise to deliver food to starving people only if they're only baptized. Yes, they convert. Yep. Right. And that's, right. I mean, that's not only mis misguided, that's immoral. Mm -hmm. But Absolutely. that's what we've done in so many of our churches. Well, I um, got to tell you, I can't, can't wait to read the book. Um, we're recording this long before it comes out. And so I'm looking forward to reading it and you've got my, you've got my brain spinning and I feel like we could talk, we could talk all day and um, exchange example after example of where this has gone right and where it has gone wrong. Um, but suffice it to say that the questioning process and the deconstructing process and the dismantling process is not one that is sinful or that is going to going to grieve the heart of God, but I think it is at the very center and the core of our relationship with God. 100%. I think that's beautifully said. You're exactly right. So Tiffany, I just, um, this has been a great conversation. Thank you so much. The book is called Gaslighted by God. How do people find you and find the book? Absolutely. Um, the book is available at, I mean, you can go to gaslightedbygod.com. Um, it's all of your online bookstores, hopefully lo local bookstores should be having it as well. Um, if you want to find out more about me, I'm at tiffanyyeckybrooks.com and that's uh, the, the middle name there is Yeki. It's Y-E-C-K-E. -E. So TiffanyYeckyBrooks.com. Or you can find me on Facebook, Tiffany Yeki Brooks, PhD. Um, and I have information there about, you know, speaking and upcoming books and, and that sort of thing. And I just I, thank you so much for this opportunity to talk about all of this. Thank you for the work that you're doing through this podcast. I think it's incredible and important and life-giving to so many people. 
Well, thank you. Well, it has been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode, we would love it if you would leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. You can find Jill at JillRiley.com, on Facebook at JillRiley.Author, Twitter at JillRileyAuthor, and Instagram at JillRiley.Author. Also, feel free to send Jill an email at Jill at JillRiley.org. Thanks for listening in and have a great day.